Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Perhaps the most difficult and intractable challenge facing the current government is the housing crisis, which has left thousands of people without homes of their own and dependent on emergency provision, while hundreds of thousands more are forced to pay rents which are well beyond their means. Despite claims by Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government Owen Murphy that the measures put in place by this government to address the crisis are beginning to yield results, most observers believe that not to be the case. Today we wanted to discuss what is probably the most important single part of any potential solution to this complex problem, the role of the state in the provision of social and affordable housing. I was joined by Simon Brook, Head of Policy at the non-profit social housing association Clude, by Sinn Féin's housing spokesman Owen O'Brien and by Michelle Norris, who, as well as being Head of the School of Social Policy, Social Work and Social Justice at UCD, is Chair of the Housing Finance Agency. So I first asked Michelle about where we actually are right now in this crisis. I suppose we are in a situation where the... Funding in particular for social housing was cut very, very radically after the bust by about 90% in the case of funding for council housing. And it was replaced with mainly with supports for households in the private rented sector, a whole series of different supports. So the funding for social housing has started to grow marginally and is slowly being rolled out. But the government is still heavily reliant on supports for households in the private rented sector. So the, the strategy hasn't really changed. It's the same strategy. So hence where we have the same problems. So we have areas like Dublin with rapid population growth, also the other cities, higher paid workers moving in that are squeezing people on benefits in particular, but also people on low to moderate wages out of the housing market. And a government response that's still mainly predicated on trying to find private rented accommodation for for people on benefits and there isn't accommodation there to be found and a relatively slow response in terms of providing more social housing that would get people out of the the private rented market and try relieve pressure. So there has been more money put forward for social housing so so that's improved but but the rollout of that is still slow. And in relation to that I don't necessarily want you to comment on the the nitty gritty politics of of the situation but the, the critique is that the current government is too wedded to supporting the private sector and is not putting as much into raising investment in in, in, in public housing. Is, is there any fairness in that or is there almost an element, element here as well of turning that ship? You know, you say, you know, that 90% decrease which happened post the crash, that you can't turn instantaneously from the model which which pervades, such as it was for the last seven or eight years, to one that's more focused on public housing? Or could you move faster? Well, let's be clear. It's not just the current government that have been pursuing this model. If we go back to 1980, in 1980, almost every low-income renting household was in council housing. That was the support. And the reliance on private rented accommodation has grown and grown and grown incrementally since then. And it grew even faster after the crash because funding for, for social housing was cut. <coughs> so this is a very long-term trend. It's not a recent driven trend. By, driven by what? I think a couple of things. Driven by a view that the private rented sector could provide a cheaper and more flexible response. And that wasn't something that was unique to the Irish government. That was a view across governments in a lot of European countries, also the the Australia, the US. So that was part of it. So it's part part of that political shift to the right, I suppose, really, in the late 70s, early, early 80s, is it? Is it? Can I characterise it that way? Well, certainly part of it was ideological. Part of it was practical, that there was a a concern that giving someone a housing allowance like rent supplement, or there's a whole series of them, they all boil down to the same thing. It's it's a subsidy to rent private rented accommodation. There was also a view that this was cheaper, particularly for small households, and it was also more flexible. Whereas if you give someone a council house or a housing association, a a non-profit sector house, the, the subsidy is for your entire life. So it's not withdrawn. So you may find yourself in a low income situation in 20, 
age 20, but at age 60, you're you're still getting that subsidy. Mm. The same doesn't apply to social welfare. I also believe in 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 the social housing sector as well. Um, councils, local <coughs> authorities used to provide almost all social housing. And there also has been a move away from just relying on local authorities to provide social housing and more of a move towards housing associations, also called approved housing bodies. And that, in, in my view, in, in, in some ways is very welcome because competition and a variety of service providers, I think, is always good for, for the clients of services. But I think it also reflects... A uh, loss of faith, particularly in the council sector and their ability to provide the service in a inefficient, cost effective way. Then after the bust, the facts of the situation also in the 1980s bust, the cuts focused primarily on capital spending because politically cutting capital spending, cutting spending on roads, social house building, you know, airports, whatever, is easier than cutting spending on social welfare, cutting my sure, wages. Because just because instance. you don't build something, it doesn't Correct. have the same effect immediately <coughs> yeah, on people's Exactly, on lives. people's. So politically, it's much, much easier. And then when you go back to try increase social housing output again, so you turn off the tap, you find that the local authorities haven't replaced their architect staff, they haven't replaced their engineers, the housing associations face the same issue. They may they have haven't built their land back built up their land banks, they may have they may have disposed of their land banks. So then trying to go out and start building again is inherently a slow process. Mm. Now policy decisions have contributed to that, but mainly it's <coughs> due to the fact that funding was cut after the bust very radically and trying to ramp up output again very quickly. So when slow. Owen Murphy says, as he does say, that a lot of um, issues have been put in place. A lot of things are underway, but that these things take time. It takes time to commission plans, to acquire land, to um, get developers on site and to get the houses built. And so that when people say things are worse than they were two years ago, one of the reasons for that is because it takes three or four or five years perhaps to address, start addressing some of these issues meaningfully. Is that fair? Yes, it's fair, but it's not the full story. So, yes, um, Owen Murphy is undoubtedly correct that it's it's slow. To, building anything is slow. Building social housing is particularly slow because there are huge amounts of objections to developments, um, including by councillors and TDs who claim to be pro-social housing. They're the facts of the situation. Public procurement is slow. Design is slow, etc. It's inherently slow. That's true. At the same time, I think there is a recognition in government circles that funding was just cut too low and the problem was allowed to get to too serious a levels in terms of shortage of social housing supply before funding was increased again. Furthermore, I still believe, and this is what my contacts in the local authority sectors tell me, the Department of Housing is still extremely slow in terms of sign-off on spending for new council house building in particular. Now, obviously, the civil servants need to ensure public money is properly spent and they have streamlined the um, levels of approval. But still there is, for instance, scrutiny of designs local authorities put forward for social housing that are designed by local authority architects. They are all double checked by architects in the Department of Housing. So the reason for this, I'm not clear. Also, there's a lot of scrutiny (coughs) over and back of costings. And obviously, public money needs to be protected. I've no issue with that. We need to ensure good value. My issue is once the costings are signed off and scrutinised and go over and back, they're then put out to tender, right? And the market mm. fundamentally at the end of the process decides what the cost is. So okay, that um, seems back to front. That seems back to front, yeah. So I think certainly there's an element of truth on both sides. Right. Simon, you're dealing with some of the issues which Michelle is talking about on a day-to-day basis. Could, maybe, first of all, you could just explain for our listeners what Cluid is. Yes, I does. work for Cluid Housing, which is either a housing association or an approved housing body, whatever word you want to use, the same thing. We're a not-for-profit independent charity, and we provide social housing mainly, also other forms of housing, but primarily social housing, on a similar basis to local authorities. And if you look across Europe, the, the not-for-profit sector is the major provider of social housing in most other European countries. And why is, so that, why is that better than direct provision by, by local authorities, It for isn't example? better than direct provision by local authorities. It's in addition to it. Okay. I think local authorities have always played a fundamental role in the provision of social housing here in Ireland. And I think that's absolutely fine. I think that's right. There's plenty of work for all of us in terms of 
responding to the challenges we have now. So we, as for example, we would be the biggest AHB in the country. We have about 6,500 uh, homes across the country, and we're hoping to develop another 2,500 over the next three years. So that's an ambitious development program. It's a small contribution, but it's a significant contribution. And in terms of the landscape which Michelle has painted a picture of there, uh, is, is that what you see, and what does that mean in terms of what Clewood is doing? Well, I think our position is slightly different from local authorities in that we didn't kind of level of cuts the local authorities did after the crash. We continued to get funding. So we didn't make people redundant. We didn't lose our, our key capacity, which meant that when funding increased, we were able to respond to that quite quickly. So, for, for example, we started building very quickly. We, we've got a lot of sites, a lot of projects on site at the moment. So our situation is, is not as bad as local authorities in many ways. But if, um, if there was a nice percent reduction in investment in, in social housing in all forms, which, which Michelle was talking about, presumably that had an impact on what you were doing. It did have an impact on us, but not as much as, as local authorities. So as I say, we didn't have to make staff redundant, so we kept our technical staff working away, and that meant that we were able to crank up our output as finance improved. But I think much more fundamentally, that if you look at Rebuilding Ireland, the current the government action plan on housing, one of the things that I think is very striking about it is it's entirely lacking in creativity. It essentially says we're going to do more of what we have done over the last number of years. So, for example, it simply says we will give local authorities lots of money to build more social housing without thinking about the different ways of doing that. And could you explain that? Well, for example, there have been a number of proposals that there should be a new national social housing authority that would be contracted by local authorities to work on their behalf. Because we have 40, 31 local authorities for a very small population. Mm. Many of the small ones simply are not big enough to have the kind of capacity to do the development that is required. So if they were able to, 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 to contract that to a, a national agency, that could could have, if it had been put in place, and it hasn't, significantly increase the capacity of the local authority housing sector. And do you see any of the sort of log jams which Michelle was referring to there about, you know, plans being put together at the local authority level, then they end up in the Department of Environment or wherever, then they sit there for a while and they're to and throwing and, and that, that the system is about as far from streamlined as you, as, you, as you could imagine? There's no doubt about that. And there seems to be an unwillingness to tackle that. I mean, we have an issue uh, on complexity in the way the funding mechanism works, which needs to be streamlined and could be streamlined. And we have made repeated proposals to streamline it. I don't need to bore you with the details. Details. But it, it could be done, it could be done overnight, and yet it's been resisted. It has been said to me by people who have dealings with both the Department of Environment and local authorities, in, in Dublin in particular, that there is, a, there is a resistance to or even a negative attitude towards the large-scale provision of public housing within those departments, <coughs> apart from outside the political system. Perfectly honest, I've had conversations with local authority officials who kind of basically phrase their relationship with social housing stock and their tenants as a burden, which they would rather not have. Well, I think it, in some local authorities, I think that's true. There are some local authorities who, if they were given the choice, the, the officials would say, we would like to give up doing social housing. We'd love prefer to leave it to Cluid or other housing associations to do the business. But I think more importantly, the, the relationship between local authorities, local government and central government is, is always going to, there's always going to be tension. But I think it's quite dysfunctional, frankly. I think that the relationship between the Department of Housing and many local authorities, it's a very dysfunctional relationship. Could, where could they you don't elaborate on that? I yeah. think they don't trust each other. Okay. Uh, they, ex- their expectations are, are at odds with one another. So they, instead of working together to, to, to co- collectively solve a problem, they're actually working against each other in the way that Michelle has described. And that is a serious problem. Owen, uh, we'll get into the politics of this in a minute, but first of all, the sort of structural issues which, which, which we've been talking about here. What do you make of those? Well, look, there, there are four fundamental problems with the government's housing policy rebuilding Ireland. And they're the same problems that were in the previous uh, Social Housing 2020 plan published by Alan Kelly when he was minister. Uh, and they replicate the same policy failures going right back to the four Fianna Fáil terms. The first is investment in social housing is about half of what we need. So over the lifespan of rebuilding Ireland, it's about a billion euros a year is going to be invested in real social housing. That'll deliver on average 6,000 real social houses a year owned by approved housing bodies or or local authorities. Uh, And that's about 50% of what's required. So that's problem one. Uh, The second is there is no direct government investment in affordable housing to rent or to buy for working families who aren't eligible for social housing. And that means last year there was no affordable housing delivered by any government scheme. There'll be none delivered this year. uh, And next year it's unlikely as well. 
The corollary of that then is, and, and Michelle is absolutely right, the over-reliance on the private sector, uh, often heavily subsidised by the state to meet social and affordable housing need is enormous. So 80% of the so-called social housing tenancies to be delivered over the lifetime of rebuilding Ireland are in the private sector, primarily through uh, two-year HAP tenancies, some through four-year RAS tenancies and a very, very small number through 10 to 15-year leasing tenancies. But also in the affordable housing sector, if you look at what the government is doing, so they're saying, oh, we're going to deliver affordable housing for working people through, for example, 200 million invested in a local infrastructure fund for private developers. Yet when we see the detail of what that money will deliver, virtually no affordability in any of the locations that they're getting that uh, fund for. So low investment in social, no direct investment in in affordable, over-reliance on the private rental sector. But then you have these other two problems. The first is this mantra that supply will tackle everything. So if you just ramp up supply, if you listen to Owen Murphy yesterday on RTE, uh, supply will resolve the problem. And the difficulty is supply in and of itself won't if the houses that have been built are too expensive or very expensive student accommodation. So unless increased supply is accompanied by guarantees of social and affordability, then you have a real problem. I mean, we produced over 93,000 units, primarily private sector, in 2006. And yet housing waiting lists were increasing, uh, reliance on rent supplement was increasing, uh, and house prices were increasing. And then the other problem, and I see this every single day, is the plethora of different schemes, different initiatives, different ideas that are emanating from the department minister and the government desperate to be seen to be doing things, complicates everything even further. So you have departmental officials one week focusing on hubs, the next week focusing on a vacant house strategy, the next week focusing on trying to develop some new private leasing to incentivise vulture funds to invest in social housing, running around like headless chickens. And that feeds then into that dysfunctional relationship, which I saw when I was on a council and I see now when I engage with the department. I suppose they'd argue in response to that, that you do need a multifaceted strategy. You, you do, do need multi It's not. You, it's not just about doing one do, but what you don't need is every couple of weeks a shift in the priorities of the department from here to there to whatever. So I actually think what you need to do is strip it all back. And you just say, okay, look, there isn't a silver bullet, but if you focus on a number of key objectives, so for example, in the budget, if the government said we're doubling capital investment in social housing uh, and we're going to double the targets over the lifetime of the next five years, that would be enormous. The second is the government was to say, in tandem with that, we're no longer going to build monotenure local authority estates. We're going to have local authorities and approved housing bodies deliver mixed tenure estates. They'd be public housing. They'd be not for profit. They wouldn't be in the private sector, but you'd have social cost rental or affordable rental and affordable sale all bought into it. The private sector has its role and it needs to be assisted. But if you think about it, putting 36,000 households into HAP, which is what's happened since it started, that's not just bad for those families in terms of lack of security of tenure or whatever, but that's crowding out everybody else who should be in the private rental sector and pushing rental prices up. So it's not just bad for the social housing tenants, it's bad for everybody else. So you need to think about reforms on those. And I also think the government just needs to be honest with itself and say, look, this policy, and again, Michelle is absolutely right, and this is a broad policy consensus, not just the view of the three of us in this room, that the broad policy consensus that has been implemented, not just since the 80s, but with gusto since 1997, has failed. That is the core of our crisis. The recession made it worse. The cuts to capital spending by Fianna Fáil and then Fine Gael and Labour made it even worse. But it's the fundamental policy foundations that we've had for three decades. They have failed. And the state needs to play a much more direct role maybe being responsible for, when I say the state, I mean in conjunction with not-for-profit approved housing bodies and co-ops, etc., needs to be responsible for maybe 20 or even 30% of the housing stock in the state at any one time. And the value of doing it that way isn't just that you start to tackle housing need over a five and then 10-year period, but you then create a buffer. So the next time there's a crash, that instead of having this 8%, which is currently the case uh, of our housing system outside of the market, you have 30% outside the market. So if the market goes a bit crazy, you're in a much better position well, to predict well, those indeed, greatest no, needs. Isn't that one of the, one of the key points, uh, Michelle, about social housing, which is not just the provision of housing for people who are not in a position to, pro- to provide it for themselves or are not able to afford the full cost in the case of affordable housing, but it's also that it, it's the state intervening in the housing market for the benefit of everybody, including people who are in a position to buy or rent th- their own property. And something like the current HAP scheme, for example, is the main one. I know there's, there's other ones with the HAP scheme. It seems to me that intervening on such a massive scale in the private housing market must have all kinds of negative effects on that market and the people who rely on that too. 
You're absolutely right. Social housing isn't just a benefit for the recipients. It also is an intervention in the market, in the housing market. And it can have, if if organised properly, lots of benefits for people who aren't in social housing. In lots of European countries, social housing is used as a counter-cyclical intervention in markets. So at times when private supply is low, governments try ramp up social house building in order to increase supply. But also it removes a proportion of people from the private market and therefore removes competition and therefore helps depress prices, particularly if the competition between both sectors. And in the past in Ireland, governments intervened in the property market through, mainly through council housing, in this counter-cyclical way. So we built at times when the private market wasn't supplying, when jobs were at low supply. We helped um, increase supply. We helped keep prices down. But since the 1980s, the focus on increased subsidies for people in the private rented sector, as opposed to building new social housing, has had the opposite effect. So we're not building enough new social housing. We're not adding to supply and trying to, you know, depress prices in the market. Instead, we're subsidising people to go into the private rented market, which therefore just adds to rent inflation. And it has particularly strong effects in some parts of the country where there's very, very high dependence on rent supplement. So it has much stronger effects in cities. It has much stronger effects in parts of cities. Because obviously when you get a subsidy from the government like HAP, like rent supplement, um, there is a cap on it. It's limited. So you can't go rent a house in Fox Rock, for instance, or or Dawkey or Ranala generally. Most rent supplement recipients go into relatively low rent parts of the city. And they might be 60, 70 percent of people renting in certain parts of the city. And in those areas, rent supplement has an enormous effect on the market um, in terms of keeping prices high. And the people who really suffer are the people who are on low to moderate incomes and are trying to rent privately and and, and fund their entire rent from their wages. Or people like my students in UCD, for instance, who are finding themselves enormously stretched in order to rent in Dublin. And migrant workers. I, mean, I was and looking migrant at some workers. of the, some of the, the yes. statistics lately and you can really yeah. cl- clearly yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. And a good ex- exemplar of that is is Germany and Austria. So the Austrians and the Germans have a similar policy because they're quite alike. Quite alike. And until the early noughties, late 90s, both countries had very, very high levels of social house building and very, very low uh, rent inflation and price inflation. The Austrians have con- have continued that policy. And, you know, they do have frothy prices in Vienna where they have, you know, Russian oligarchs buying nice apartments, etc., as you can imagine. But generally, their house price inflation has been very low and very stable. And they intervene using social housing deliberately as an economic policy, not just as a social policy to try to press prices. The Germans operated this model for 50 years. And then as part of their reforms and austerity and cuts to the welfare state, they abandoned it and have now moved into private private rent subsidies. And their house price inflation and their rent inflation, particularly in cities, has increased very dramatically, even though they have rent control. Yeah, unlike so, here, because unlike one of the here. points here is so, that you know, there's vast number of people who are reliant on these state supports yeah. to put them into private rent accommodation where they're being turfed out because or, or the rents are becoming just impossible for them. And yeah. it's, it's not just people who are on social housing supports. Like One of the mistakes, I think, sometimes in commentary is that we have a, a private market and then we have a state intervention. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you look even currently uh, at the private market, the layers of state intervention outside of the social housing sector are enormous. So, for example, there's a phenomenal amount of tax foregone in the mortgage interest supplement reliefs, for example, the private landlords get. If you look at the increasing tax incentives that have been made available to real estate investment trusts and ICAVs and and other kinds of funds, again, there's enormous uh, state subsidies for private developers. If you look at the money, for example, around the local infrastructure uh, investment housing activation fund uh, or indeed the help to buy scheme. So we've always had a state that intervenes very heavily, not just for people who can't afford housing, but right across the sector. Uh, So first of all, it's important to say that it's not a housing market, it's a system. And we need to look at the way in which the state intervenes in that. But the other thing is this, because I think we need to start changing the debate and maybe stop talking about social housing and say what we really want is large scale public housing and public housing that's not just for the very poorest in our society who can't afford housing, but also for all sorts of other people who don't need a subsidy 
Like affordable housing is not subsidised housing. It is housing that is provided at the economic cost of providing that housing. Our difficulty is, if you look at, for example, the house of a semi-detached new build in Dublin, more than half of that has nothing to do with the cost of building it. Uh, and if you look at, for example, the cost of land, seventy to €90,000 for the plot, a large portion of that is speculative gain by developers. So affordable housing is basically the state saying, well, we can cut out all of those non costs, all those speculative additions. And for example, if you take Okulon, uh, the social affordable housing project in Ballymun, they were building the housings for about 120. If you add on the site servicing and land uh, uh, costs, it was about 140. They can sell those houses for 170 to 225. People buying those houses aren't getting a subsidy, right? What they're not doing is they're not paying the enormative, enormous additional speculative costs. And if we start saying, look, what we want is large-scale, mixed-income, mixed-tenure public housing that's in the social good, I think then you might actually see a, a change in the nature of the public debate like this, and response proof, from politicians. Proof is in the is, does Clwyd find that? I mean, where, where, where does Clwyd tend to be tend to be building uh, its housing when it's Mostly in urban areas. And is it on, is it on publicly owned land? It's a mix of publicly owned land and private land. We're also involved in part five where under normal new housing developments up to 10% of housing can be allocated for reserve for social housing. So we're involved in, in, in that, that programme as well. But we build on all, all, all sorts of But sites. is Owen right about the, 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 the importance of, of site costs, essentially? Oh, yeah. site costs are yeah. a fundamental part of it, yes. But there's a huge amount of land owned by local authorities that isn't being used. In, in this city, look at O'Devony Gardens, which has been vacant for, what, 10 years plus? Mm. St Michael's Estate... Player Wills Factory, all of those vacant sites that could have been used and simply haven't been. But just to go back to what I think Owen is absolutely right, I think we should abolish social housing. I think he's absolutely right. And I think we have to have a different form of looking at housing. We need a cultural change here in Ireland because up until very recently, and it's still there, there's an obsession with owner occupation as the solution to everybody. Where do you think that comes from? I think it goes back to the land wars, Mm -hmm. uh, the land league at the end of the 19th century, where there was a massive right to buy that farmers got. They were able to, a huge transfer of wealth where they were paying rents which were less than their, sorry, their mortgage was less than the rents they were paying to English landlords. So that kind of owner occupation became part of the sort of the Irish psyche a long, long time ago. And it's been there ever since. But we have Although to- I would have thought issues like security of tenure and rent controls and those kinds of things which exist in many other countries contribute to the fact that people want to get out of the renting market. Absolutely. But we need to change that. What we need to do, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that first-time buyers are now, the average age is late 30s. It's going to be early 40s before too long. And that's probably as it should be, as it is in many other European countries. What we need is a rental sector as an alternative to owner occupation for those people, which means they can live somewhere for 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is, and know that their rent will rise at a reasonable level during that period and have proper security. But one of the things that strikes me listening to Simon about that, uh, Michelle, is that one of the criticisms of our traditional social housing system is that it's a kind of a one-size-fits-all and that there are lots of things that it doesn't do to reflect demographics and the realities of the way people lead their lives in the 21st century. For example, that you know uh, people require a certain type of accommodation when they're single or couples in their 20s. They require a certain kind of accommodation when they're raising families. They may require some kind of step down smaller, uh, smaller thing that there there are a lot of blockages in that system as well that might actually free up social social housing for people. Plus, you add things like I know you were recommending um, uh, a few weeks ago that uh, any kind of sale of council houses to their to their tenants should be should be frozen for the moment. So there are those kinds of issues. In some cases, do social housing properties get passed on from one generation to another? Uh, and also, there's a question of you know what's a what's a valid rent that people should pay? Absolutely. Just to cover the first of the issues, if we look at the social housing stock we have now, the vast bulk of it is three bedroom houses, family homes. It was built for it was built for family homes, and in addition to trying to build new social housing, we need to use the existing stock as efficiently as we can. There is a strong argument, particularly in urban areas, that nearly all new social housing output should focus on small dwellings because single people are a very large portion of the waiting list, mainly single men, lone parent families with one child, and also provide opportunities for tenants who are in social housing and may their families may have grown up and left to, to move down into a, more, a smaller, more appropriately sized unit. That would enable us then to move 
move families into existing social housing units. So that's an issue we we definitely need to look at. There are also significant problems within the way in which the social housing sector is funded and managed. So when I mentioned earlier on that there was a kind of a loss of faith in government circles, I think particularly among civil servants who are involved in policy making, um, a loss of faith in social housing. It, it is important to acknowledge that to, to, the, to an extent that reflects problems in the sector. There's no point in denying the problems. So, the, the, Wait, Which kind of problems are we talking about? Well, the problems we're talking about, well, the, the problems I think are the most significant within the, the council housing sector in particular is that historically we've sold very, very high levels of council housing. We've sold two thirds of all the council housing we ever built. Between 1990 and 2000, for instance, we sold 85% of all the houses we built between that period. It means that the, sale, the dwellings are sold at a big discount from market value. It's currently 60%. Even though there is a clawback, it's still 60%, it's 60% of market value. The so, clawback is on the basis that people remain in the dwellings for, for a period. Time. Yeah, in the past there hasn't been a clawback. But the system means that each subsequent generation and at each housing crisis, we have to ramp up investment in social housing again. So those dwellings we sold off historically, uh, obviously People may be in them for their lifetime, but they could have been available for reletting to new tenants. Um, and they were sold at 60% of market value in 1990, for instance. We're now replacing them at 100% of market value in 2018. So our system is inefficient because it requires constant reinvestment. And are you saying we should just completely stop doing that? Yes, because I heard Owen Murphy yesterday, and that was one of the points in when he was being interviewed on RTE that he seemed most resistant to. He kind of couched it in a certain way, but he's, he, he, I'm paraphrasing him here. He said it thought, he thought it would be important that people could still have the possibility to buy their homes. If someone lives in a social housing home and lives for a, a number of years, we don't want to take away their aspiration to be able to own that home themselves as well after a period of time. And we're doing work on that at the moment as to how we might change the current system that's there. You see, council housing tenants have lifetime tenancies. This is something I support, by the way. I think it's it's very important for having stable communities. They currently have a right um, where a, a relative is living with them when the tenant dies. There is a right to inherit the tenancy. So people have the same rights as owner occupiers without the risk of a mortgage. But the issue is that, um, particularly in urban areas, replacing those houses in a similar location, you know, for reasonable cost is almost impossible. If you're in the likes of, for instance, Offaly, you may find Offaly County Council can get new land and build replacement houses. It's not as serious. But particularly in urban areas, the policy is very problematic. The other problems within the, particularly within the council council sector, um, relate to how the sector is funded through rents and how it's funded by the Department of Housing. So the system we have in Ireland is the sector is funded almost entirely by capital grants to build or buy the dwellings from the Department of Housing. So obviously the department then needs to sign off on the money, as I, as I mentioned earlier, and that's, that's reasonable. But it means the local authorities have less flexibility than if they were funding it themselves. <coughs> and they don't have the opportunity, for instance, like a, lo- a local authority would have in other parts of Europe, to decide housing is a particular priority for us. We're going to increase local property taxes wherever we're funded to fund it. That, that, that doesn't happen here. Then in, in when the tenants get the house, they pay a rent that's related to their income. That's positive because a lot of council housing tenants have very low incomes and it's an important anti-poverty measure. So that's very good. From a housing management point of view, it's extremely problematic because it means that Firstly, you have no certainty over the income you get to allow you to manage and maintain the house. If the tenant's income goes down, your income goes down, even though your maintenance costs may go up and, and vice versa. So, so that's problematic. And if the tenant's income goes up, does the rent go up? If the tenant's income goes up, the rents go up. And actually, rents have gone up since we pulled out of recession. But the other issue is this system lacks incentives for efficient management. And in fact, I think it's very difficult as uh, for local authorities to manage the sector efficiently. It's, it's not that we don't have dedicated staff in the sector, hardworking staff, we do. But in the system means that you get a grant from the Department of Housing to build or buy the house. You then get an income-related rent, which average rent at the moment is €52 Euro a week. And it means that if the dwelling becomes vacant, your loss in terms of a rent is really, really minor. In fact, you may be losing money actually letting the dwelling. 
Because it, it requires maintenance yeah, and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, because it maintains maintenance, etc. Mm. You have no incentive to go out and relet that quickly. It also means that when you you as a as a social housing manager should be planning for different types of maintenance. You should be planning for responding to people's maintenance requests. You should be planning to upgrade the dwelling after 15 years and maybe upgrade the, the heating. You should be planning major refurbishment after 30 years. That's the, the standard approach to the management of big Housing complexes or yeah. flat blocks or within whatever. the within the Irish system, it's absolutely impossible to do that. And one big issue we have within the social housing sector is there's not enough main, spending on maintenance of the sector, and there's far too much spending on large scale regeneration of dwellings. And that regeneration spending, so we have dwellings knocked down, major refurbishments, etc. It's necessary because the the rent system, the, the revenue funding we have to maintain the dwellings mm. isn't adequate and the dwellings become run down and need to be rebuilt. And does the same apply then to the, to the, <coughs> the, the flat complexes and the developments that include well, We're funding them all a different way yes. from, from local authorities. So we essentially have a mortgage and we have to make repayments on that mortgage and we're helped by the state to do that. But it's, we are incentivised to manage our stock well. So what we do is we put aside an amount every year for every dwelling, which means when we need to replace the roof in 30 years' time, we've already pay for that so and that's that's a good that's an incentive but in terms of your the revenue side of that equation the the the, the rent that people we get rent from from tenants in the same way as they from local authorities our average rent is very very low i actually think it's too low um it's about 55 60 euro a week um but we that's not enough obviously to pay uh, make repayments on our loans so we get a a, a subsidy from the state um, to make sure that our our books balance Hmm. but just going back to tenant purchase i think it's a really really good example it's absolute madness on the one hand to be pumping money into the social housing sector on the other hand to be flogging it off at a discount i have no problem with tenant purchase at my open market value but it is it is crazy to have that that un, lack of balance and yet it is promoted primarily by politicians as a fundamental feature of social housing in ireland and one that tenants absolutely love but one of the things that they don't say in that discussion is that tenants of housing associations don't have that right there's no right to, to purchase their home for, from us. We have no difficulty renting our housing. We ha- nobody turns us down because they can't buy, buy their house from us. Oh, and what's Jim Fain's position on this? Yeah, I, I take a slightly different view on the tenant purchase. I, I agree, first of all, that the discounts are far too great. Uh, and I also agree that it has resulted in a depletion of stock. But I represent a constituency that has huge local authority housing estates. Uh, and there are a number of advantages to certain types of tenant purchase if it's designed well. The first is, as working class families start to improve their income and their employment status. Uh, if they have the option to buy the house, they remain in the state. And that ensures that the estates are far more mixed income. So if I look at the estates, for example, which are the most mixed income and which have the, the most vibrant communities, uh, they're often those that have a very settled community, some of whom are tenant purchasers and others who aren't. It also gives those families access to credit, and that has all sorts of positive benefits so long as it's managed right. And unfortunately, the automatic right to secession that Michelle mentions is no longer in practice, for example, in the four Dublin local authorities. Uh, and that is a big issue. However, there are fundamental problems with the way in which tenant purchase has been run in this state. For example, the current scheme should be scrapped. Uh, and I've argued for a suspension of, of tenant purchase until we get our stock levels up. I think a couple of things. I, I, I would keep tenant purchase. Uh, I wouldn't have the level of discounts that are there. I would have a discount that somehow is related to the length of time. Like, it's crazy. You can move into a house today and you can buy it at a 40, 50 or 60% discount in a year, uh, depending on your income. That makes no sense. But what I would also do is I would say this. First of all, no house that's bought by a tenant purchaser could ever be sold into the private market. If that person doesn't want to pass it on to their children or their grandchildren and at a later stage wants to sell it, they have to sell it back into the local authority system at the discounted price, maybe in this links for, for inflation. But what I'd also do is I'd say to local authorities, they have an obligation in addition to their social housing program to meet new demand. For every house sold, there would have to be an additional house provided. So it wouldn't just be an extra house from the, the, the current programme. It would have to be additional. So I do think we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think you could design, maybe not for the moment, that the crisis that we're in, but you could design a tenant purchase programme that I think would be of benefit to communities, to families uh, and to the housing system. I, I want to ask but, Michelle what she thinks but, of that. But I do agree with Michelle and Simon. The model of tenant purchase that we've introduced over the last number of years, which is based broadly on the right to buy, as it was called, introduced by Thatcher, has been an absolute failure and I wouldn't support that model. Michelle? 
Yeah, I, I just don't agree. There is a view which is widespread among politicians and widespread among local authority officials working in social housing that sales of, of council housing to tenants, tenant purchase, is necessary to what they call settle estate. So they say an estate with lots of turnover of tenants and um, it was very problematic to manage and now everyone, buy, everyone bought and it's now utopia. I mean, the evidence shows actually there, there's a chicken and egg issue here. People buy in estates that are already settled, already in high demand, etc. If you're in a neighbourhood which is not in high demand, where maybe there's antisocial behaviour problems, you're not happy with the quality of the dwelling, pe- people don't buy. So it so, actually drives ghettoisation. is that what you're saying? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, it, it means that the least popular stock is left within the local authority sector for them to continue to manage. Which is what happened, for example, with Ballymun in the 1970s and 1980s. Absolutely. I mean, in ba- Ballymun is a very good exemplar of it because flats at the time weren't eligible for tenant purchase. Households moved out of the flats they then moved into the houses that were being built all around the flats in Ballymun and bought the houses. And it meant that there was a cycle of constant turnover within the, the flats in Ballymun, which created a lot of social problems and, and community problems. The other issue about tenant purchase as well is that there is a lot of evidence, including evidence gathered by the Department of Housing, that the way in which it has operated has changed in recent years. So we've actually been selling council housing to tenants in Ireland since 1936, 1936 Labourers Act. Oh, I live so, in a former council house that was built in the 1920s. Yeah, so, yeah. so do uh, 20% of the population, 20% of the housing stock in Ireland was built by councils. Only 8% is owned by councils now. So a lot of people live in, in, in council housing and you know, council housing has been very valuable in terms of improving the quality of housing in our in our cities. But in the past, people tended to buy their council house 10 years into the tenancy generally because you qualified for the, the maximum discount after 10 years. They paid down the mortgage and they moved out at the other end in a box, as the, as the saying so. They, say, they stayed their whole lives. During the, the boom, the way in which tenant purchase worked changed. So, Households were getting such large discounts. There was a lot of evidence, and I've researched this, for instance, in the Dublin area, that they were just flipping the house, selling it with the discount because it's a huge windfall discount and moving on. And in fairness to the Department of Housing, they have amended the terms of the scheme in recent years to provide for this clawback in part to address the issue. We also have issues where it was quite common for a situation where an elderly person bought the house, sometimes without a mortgage. I certainly suspected that adult children were were contributing to this. The latest scheme actually prohibits sales for cash. Um, and you have to buy with the mortgage. So those developments are are positive. I think in rural areas where council housing can be replaced, it's less of a problem. But in urban areas, the policy is extremely problematic. And council housing tenants do get a subsidy called a mortgage allowance to go out and buy a house in the private market outside their own house anyway. So it's not as if they're not being supported for home ownership. They're actually eligible for additional supports. Other households aren't. Just to point out to you as well that this policy has also been applied to, for instance, the mortgage to rent purchases. So so households who can't pay their mortgage, they're moved into a mortgage to rent scheme. They are then eligible to buy back that house at the cost which the Housing Association or the local authority bought it if their situation improves. So the state is funding it at very, very high cost and then it's selling it for less. And then the, the next government has to go back in and reinvest in more social housing. Oh, and I suppose listening to all this, I still report in an, <coughs> another newspaper that you're considering, your party's considering putting down a motion of no confidence in, in Owen Murphy. But listening to what we're hearing here today about a sort of fractured, splintered approach, one which clearly you have no confidence, but you're, you're in, a, in, in a party of opposition. For the kind of long-term strategies that, that are needed to address this, does it not need some kind of an all-party approach which would translate from one government into the next government, which would take the long view which is necessary? And to achieve that, what's underlying some of the disagreements here between yourself and an Owen Murphy or, or Fianna Fáil about the relative you know, capital investment from the state versus the role of the private sector? Are those irreconcilable differences between your parties. The irony, of course, is is immediately after the general election and before the government that we have currently was formed, Sinn Féin tabled a motion for the creation of a, a subcommittee of the Dáil, which was called the Dáil Housing and Homeless Committee. Uh, we met for seven weeks. We had about 40 oral hearings. I think both Michelle and, and Simon were, were part of the many people who came in. We took 90 written submissions and we produced a cross-party report of 100 pages. It, it had 23 priority recommendations and, in fact, the level of consensus that was reached between all but one of the politicians in that committee was remarkable. And we set out a whole range of, of recommendations. And the timing was quite fortuitous because we finished our report 
court, uh, Simon Coveney was appointed uh, for the first time in the history of the state, as far as I understand, or certainly in the modern history of the state, as a dedicated minister for housing to develop a plan. The problem is much of the, the substance of our recommendations either weren't contained in Rebuilding Ireland or haven't been uh, adhered to in terms of what we wanted. So we had that all-party exercise. We produced the report. And in fact, a lot of what all three of us are saying here is relatively consistent with elements of that. Not all of it, but... So I suppose the frustrating thing at this point is we're two years into this process. Uh, when Simon Coveney was appointed minister, I said on the floor of the doll, I want him to succeed and I will engage with him positively as the party spokesperson. Uh, I, I will make detailed policy recommendations. We'll work constructively on legislation. When uh, he made a quick exit for the door before his first major test failed, the getting families out of, uh, out of hotels uh, a year in, and Owen Murphy came in, I said exactly the same thing. So contrary to the fact that I'm an opposition politician and I want the government to do badly, so say some people, I want this government to succeed. Our problem is two years in, the first thing is that the strategy itself, the plan itself, the levels of investment, as we kind of highlighted at the start, aren't working. So we need a fundamental change. The second thing, however, is is there is an issue around the minister, and this isn't to personalise it around him as a person, but he is responsible for, for steering the policy and if changes need to be made for leading those. And I listened to him very, very carefully on Miriam O'Callaghan yesterday. Uh, now, keep in mind, this is a minister where it took him four weeks before he responded in person uh, to Margaret Cash and her children being forced to sleep uh, on the plastic chairs in the Garda station. Four weeks. And what was the final thing he said in his interview yesterday? He said, all of the uh, indicators and housing suppliers showing our policy is working. So what that says to me is, first of all, the policy is the problem. And, and our focus going into the next all term will be to argue in advance of the budget for a, a substantial uplift in the level of investment for social and affordable housing and significant policy change. But I've also taken the view tracking Owen Murphy very, very carefully, working with them on a small number of occasions constructively on legislation that we've agreed with and we've been very uh, uh, assisting with him that, is that he doesn't understand the depth of the crisis. He doesn't understand the kinds of policy changes that need to be made. And that means at the cabinet table, the person who's responsible for saying, you know what, folks, things aren't working. We need to shift gear here. He's not that person. So we've said for a long time we haven't had confidence in him. A motion of no confidence isn't something you do frivolously. So therefore, if we are to do it, it's something that we will take time to consider very carefully. But probably what's more important than that is the budget is going to be announced in a matter of weeks. See unless there's at least a doubling of capital investment in social and affordable housing. See unless there's some significant changes in terms of how uh, housing targets and housing policy is outlined. Then what we're going to see is whether it's Owen Murphy or Anybody else from the Fine Gael front or, or backbench, we're going to see the same policy failures replicated. So our focus in the first instance is on the policy. But I have to say, uh, Owen Murphy is a very hardworking guy. He, he's a very smart guy. I, I happen to like him personally. But a year in, I have to say, I think he's failing in his ministerial responsibility. Uh, and I think when, when that's the case, I think you have to ask yourself, is the person fit for the job? Simon, what's your view, not necessarily on Owen, Owen Murphy as a human being, uh, but uh, the performance of, of his department? Well, I think there are two interesting elements to this. The first is that in a housing crisis... It, it, the mantra is there are no quick fixes. And by and large, that is true. But there are some quick fixes. There are some things that could be done now or could have been done recently which would make a big difference. For example, there is an absolutely overwhelming case for a rent freeze in the private rented sector at the moment. The major cause of homelessness is rents in the private rented sector. And a rent freeze for two years at least would be a start. And that could be done tomorrow. Secondly, the part five that we were talking about earlier, which is 10% of housing developments allocated for social housing, that could be doubled to 20% overnight without any difficulty at all, a very small amendment to the legislation. Howls of, of protest from some quite powerful vested interests. Yes, and they did that. And to give credit to Fianna Fáil, when they brought that legislation in, it was against the developer lobby, which very powerfully fought against it. The fact is... And they challenged, it, they challenged it in the courts at the time, and they lost. And they lost. But we have developers coming to us now. They know that if social housing is well managed, it is not a problem. In fact, it helps the developers because they sell their housing to us at a guaranteed price. They can go to their banks and they can say, we're building 100 units. We've sold 10 of them to, to Cluid. And they're coming to us and saying, would you like more? So it is actually happening within the developer sector. So that could be done. That, could, that would have an immediate impact. But the other side of it is there are some quick fixes, but the long term is being ignored. 
And it is absolutely fundamental in the, at, a, at a housing crisis that you don't forget the long term. You want to make sure that we're not going to be in this position again in 10 years' time or in 15 years' time. And Owen is absolutely right. There was a very broad consensus within that committee. And what we need is a 20-, 25-year housing plan that sets out targets like 20% social housing. We need to aim for that. We need to aim for 10% affordable housing for people whose incomes are above social housing but can't afford market rents. And, and, and the rest are perhaps 10% private rented for a range of purposes and 60% on occupation. We, most parties would probably agree on that. And we could then work out a roadmap as to how to achieve that. But there are also issues of quality, of security, of sustainable communities, all of which are largely ignored in, in rebuilding Ireland. And it's really important that we don't forget those. What are the chances of that happening, Michelle? Well, within the current political system, limited, because, I mean, I work with Owen Murphy because I I chair the board of one of his agencies. I think he's a very impressive individual, frankly. I've seen a series of very impressive ministers in in the housing ministry in recent years. I thought Simon Coveney was very impressive. I thought Alan Kelly was very impressive. But the the system has continued to get worse. And I think politicians actually in those ministerial positions in the short term are actually in an impossible position. They're not in a position to solve the fundamental problems in the system. So the fundamental problems in the system is that we're intervening in the market in a very pro-cyclical way. When we have it, we spend it. Department of Finance signs often more money for social housing. Um, it's generally at the top of the housing market. We're buying social housing at very poor value. And then when we don't have it, we don't spend it, to, to, to quote a former finance minister. And there's the times when we should be investing in the market. So any minister of housing is going to grapple with that situation where the sector is primarily funded by central government grants. I mean, I interviewed a senior civil servant recently who said the social housing sector was trying to fill fill a bucket with the hole in the bottom of the bucket because you're selling off the housing stock you have at a discount and then replacing at current value and you have a situation where your rents are not adequate to maintain the sector. So I agree with Simon that we need to start planning over the long term, not just over the term of one minister. Owen is entirely correct that we need to set policy priorities. Lots of things can be done, but if unless we set priorities, nothing is a priority. In my view, more social housing output is the key priority <coughs> because it will address homelessness the 10,000 families we have in homeless accommodation. And it will also move those families that can't compete in the market out of the market. And it will also decrease the competition in the market for everyone else. That needs to be a priority. The other thing we need to do, as well as planning long term, is to reform how we fund the sector. And I don't know, is it is it widely understood? Because everyone has a tendency to assume whatever's done in your country is the norm. But our system for funding social housing is to my knowledge, unique um, in the world. Well, the Australians may do something similar, but anyway, between unique to ourselves and the Australians. So, so that system is central government grants and income-related rents. And it means no one can plan. And as I said, that when we have the money, we, we spend it. And when we don't, we don't. We need to start moving towards a model that's used in other countries that manage their housing mat- markets better. And there are other small countries in Europe, like the Danes, like the Austrians, we can look to for models. So in those countries, the sector is funded by loans, um, which is currently how housing associations are funded here. The, uh, the tenants pay a rent that reflects the cost of providing the dwelling. And if they can't afford it, they get a subsidy from government. And that means you spread out your costs over a longer term. The housing managers are guaranteed. They know what their income is. It allows them to plan for maintenance. You don't have such a problem of very rundown estates as, as, as we do here. And it's still affordable for tenants. And they also have a constant incentive to manage the sector effectively. Because if your dwelling isn't occupied, you're not doing without 50 quid a week. You're doing without whatever, a couple of hundred quid a week, the the actual cost of maintaining the dwelling. So in my view, we need to make quite fundamental changes in how the system is planned for and also funded. Unless that's done, anyone moving into the housing ministry brief, no matter how well-intentioned they are, and I I feel that everyone I've I've worked with in that role, their intentions are good, but they're really in an impossible position. Michelle, Owen, Simon, thanks very much. 
And that is it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests. And just to note that we have also invited Minister Owen Murphy to come on to this podcast and that that invitation remains open. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always very welcome. Uh, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>